I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and this is episode 23. Just to keep everybody updated, I'm on self-quarantine day 24. That doesn't mean that I haven't been out of the house, but the kids haven't been out of the house, and I've only left once a week to go to the grocery store, producing the podcast from here in the White Tiger studio, exclusively doing phone interviews, recording video lectures in my dining room for my classes at Portland State University, and otherwise maintaining a pretty significant social distance from everybody but the three people that I'm currently living with. So that's the update. I hope that everybody out there is doing well, staying healthy, staying safe, staying as little cabin crazed as they possibly can. And hopefully, if you are lucky enough to have the time to spend taking a pause from the frenetic pace of society, that you're able to actually take that pause and enjoy that pause. For those of you who are out there on the front lines, making sure that people are fed and sheltered and cared for, I hope that you also have a little bit of time to spend relaxing and rejuvenating. And that's my greatest hope that we're all going to get something that we need out of this pandemic, whatever that might be. And that as we come out on the other side, we will be transformed in the most positive ways that are possible. So that's where I am right now. And I'm not going to dwell on that too much. I'm going to move right forward into the episode. My guest this week is a woman who spent several decades working in politics in Washington, D.C., from the late 1970s through the early 2000s. Before moving to DC, she was trained to be a PhD in political science, and then she ran into some ugly campus politics, and she decided to leave academia and pursue an opportunity in the Presidential Management Intern Program, which was established by President Carter to bring some of the best and the brightest to Washington, DC to work in executive branch positions. She ended up working as a researcher and policymakers on various commissions and task forces in the executive branch, and also as a legislative assistant for members of Congress before leaving government service to become a healthcare policy consultant and lobbyist. She has some really interesting stories to tell about her time in DC, as well as an important perspective as a witness to the major shifts in American politics that took place beginning with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. She sat down with me in my office on the PSU campus in late February, a few weeks before social distancing and shelter in place went into effect. That's a kind of a fond memory for me is being able to interview people face to face. So I'm just going to jump right into it, and here's the interview. I'm in my office with Liz Darby. Glad to be here. So you spent a lot of time working in Washington, D.C. in various ways. 
What first got you interested in going into politics? I think my mother. Um, I grew up in a very conservative Republican family, but she was very active. I have been following politics since I was very young. In what way was she active? What were, what were some of the things that made her active politically? Well, she was very involved in local campaigns, you know, worked on them. I don't know why it interested me, but it did. I got married fairly young, very young, and went back to school at, I don't know, mid-later mid 20s to finish my undergraduate degree. And I did a graduate degree, and I did a complete reverse of my politics. What were your politics prior to that, and, and well, what was the big change? I, I just took on, I mean, I walked out of my house with, uh, with my mother's politics. You were socialized as a conservative Republican, yeah. you took that on. What was it in college and or graduate school that got you to reverse your politics? I think it was the Vietnam War protests, and I thought, what are they protesting? And I started investigating thinking, well, we should never be in Vietnam. (laughs) So that started to move me um, in a different direction, and it's funny, I have this very distinct memory of my former husband saying to me about Nixon through the Watergate process. I voted for Nixon as well uh, the first time. He did it. You just have to accept it. He did it. But I just couldn't believe that anybody that was president of the United States could do what he did. How long did it take you to accept the fact that politicians weren't as public-spirited as maybe you thought? Well, that's interesting, Jack, because to this day, I still know politicians that I think are honorable people of integrity. But I know there are a lot of rotters out there, too. Right, so Vietnam sort of was the beginning, and even still with Watergate, you, you, you had some of your... I just couldn't believe that somebody who had attained that level of power, recognition, I didn't see it as power at that stage, but recognition that he had been elected as president and he had done what he did. What eventually got you to accept that Nixon was who he was? Oh, it didn't take very long. I mean, as as I started listening to all the testimony and all of that is what turned me around and... I've just been, I don't know if you'd say an extreme liberal ever since, but... So Vietnam and Watergate were the one-two punch. Yeah. What was the next step in your political development? When I got to Washington... And what year was that that you arrived? 1979. Another part of my background was I was married to a um, surgical oncologist, and so I had a lot of knowledge about not only surgery, health, but health policy. So I interviewed at what was then called the Healthcare Financing Administration, which is now the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. That's a pretty dusty corner of the federal government, the Healthcare Financing Administration. HICFA! <laughs> and there are a lot of these dusty corners of yes. the federal government. You found yourself in one of them. So I started there, and I learned very quickly that for me, the way to feel like I have accomplished something is to get on a task force or a commission. And so I started off with the uh, White House Council on Aging, which I, they do every, or they used to do every 10 years, looks at what, where they are and 
what needs to be changed and moved forward. And so uh, from that, when we finished, I was asked if I'd be interested in being on a 25-person team that was looking at problems with nursing homes. And I accepted that, and the team divided up all over the country, and I came down the West Coast. The primary issue was the availability or lack of availability of Medicaid beds in nursing homes. They were trying to figure out how this happened. What I found was that many people tended to be sons of elderly mothers would say, Mother, it's time for you to go live in the home. And they would spend down all her money, in other words, turn it over to themselves so that they could apply for a Medicaid bed. And I found that pretty consistently and found the other other issue was that many individuals that didn't have family resources, including the family itself, were moved and moved and moved. I met half a dozen people that had been moved because these Medicaid patients came in and there was nothing wrong with them. So the nursing costs were a lot lower. It's what drove the nursing homes to do this rather than keep patients that needed a lot of help. Was your commission able to turn all of the research into actual policy, policy yes. and, and it was a was it a successful change, would you say? Yes. Yes. So you had a you had a good experience early on yes. with policy making turning yes. into positive change. Yes. Was that your general experience working in government or was this the exception? No, that was my I worked on Capitol Hill for a year. That was an interesting experience. I worked uh, on the investigative team of Claude Pepper, who at the time was the oldest member of Congress. He had this team of people that investigated nursing homes all the time, and when I went on to work for them, I was told that I was to organize a hearing on drug abuse in nursing homes. And I you know, started searching for people that had been drug abused in nursing homes, and I finally went to the head of this team, and I said, I can't find any. Recent, I, the most recent I can find is 1974. He said, they're out there, you have to find them. So I went back, I tried again, I could not find any, and I, I was responsible for putting on this hearing. And when I walked into the hearing room, this is back in the day when we had three big TV channels, I walked into the hearing room and there were nine television stations in the hearing room and my first thought was, yes. <laughs> you were excited about that? Yes. This was your television debut? Because, because <laughs> there was a lot of uh, media attention around all of this. I still didn't have anybody that had been drug abused since 1974. Let me get this right. There was a political motivation for you to find this problem, but the research didn't turn it up. That's right. And now you're showing up in the hearing with nothing. It's interesting because I didn't realize, I mean, the things that went through my head when I saw those cameras and then I started listening to the testimony. I grew up in Hollywood. My father was in the movie business. I thought, Jesus, this is Hollywood was my reaction, and after the hearing, 
a number of different people that own nursing homes came up to me and said, you know, if you'd like to talk, I can tell you that there is no more drug abuse in nursing homes. We can tell you what the problems are. You know, in that hour after that hearing, I learned more about nursing homes than I had ever known before I started putting on this hearing. Suddenly I realized there are two sides to every story, and when you're doing this work, you need to figure out what both sides have to say about it before you come to any conclusions. So what was the results of the, of the hearing? Uh, well, there was public policy that was developed, and in that process, the problem I ran into was the PhD researchers at HICVA. Uh, I, I went to talk to them. I discovered none of them had ever been in a nursing home. And I said, you know, I can arrange for you to go visit a nursing home. None of them would. You know, I said, I don't understand. Well, it might bias us. And I said, well, do you think that you've never been in one might be a bias? Is that another form of outrage that you have? Uh, well, I just was so... <laughs> I can see how you can be appalled by that. Well, I was puzzled. And I thought, how can you do this research if you only know one side of it? If you just read, read, you don't talk to anybody. Now... I finally did get two of them to go, and we finally ended up with policy that I think was reasonable. The way it was done then was I would sit down with a legal tablet and pencils and start writing what we were going to recommend to members of Congress. When you did that, you also offered what the political implications could be. And did that bother you that you had to do a political analysis as well as a policy analysis? No, because I would look at it from their perspective. Part of when I would write what the political implications would be were ways that they could explain something so it didn't sound as maybe horrific as some people might might hear it. You were writing essentially public relations material for them to take to their constituents. Yes, yes. And that was helpful in getting them to come to yes. Well, we did get to yes. I don't know if that was the helpful part, but... (laughs) But that was certainly something you felt the need to do yeah. to get to yes. Yeah, no, I, I am. Yeah. Now, this does not seem like it outrages you. This seems like you're very calm about it, that that's just part of the process. Well, but I think that if you are a member of Congress, you have to have answers that make sense to your constituents. I would rather have them have answers that make sense to their constituents than some of the lies that we hear today. You know, I really, really do believe that through that period of time, that there was, bipartisanship was real. People did work together. I mean, I saw it. It probably was not perfect, but I never saw anything that really outraged me through that period of time. It wasn't until the 90s that I started seeing things that really, I thought, how can they do this? What do you think the big change was between the 80s and the 90s that changed that landscape. I'll never forget when I heard Reagan say he was going to get government off people's backs. And when that attitude kind of took hold, rather than seeing your government as something that was working for you, or trying to work for you, and you had the opportunity to let them know why it wasn't working for you, and people would listen, that seemed to stop through that period of time. 
And this, I think, is one of the reasons why people have uh, get the government off our back attitudes, that it's always easy to see the problems. It's always easy to see what the government screws up, even when it's right. doing good things that go exactly. unnoticed. Right. So this is probably a good time to get to the question that I ask all of my guests, which is, what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does, and why? I can see that there are things that still outrage you, mm. but what, what is a past outrage that you've gotten past, and how, how has that happened for you? <laughs> or I'm not sure. It's totally legitimate to say, I'm still outraged by everything that used to outrage me, and more. Uh, well, I think maybe it might be different things. You know, when people are complaining about homeless people, and, you know, they're so lazy, and I'm thinking, oh, for God's sakes. You know, half of them are mentally ill, half of them are Vietnam vets with PTSD, and many of them today got evicted from their apartments because they're making seven bucks an hour. Yeah. You're outraged at people's attitude, uh, dismissive attitude of the homeless or the mentally ill. Right, right, of people that are less fortunate than they are. I am. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. When you were in politics, did your outrage fuel you, or did you find it problematic? Did it distract you? I don't believe, I, I could be really wrong, but I can't remember any time when I was doing policy work that it was my outrage that fed anything. I think it was talking with other people and finding out what a better way might be. The first time I was really outraged in D.C. is when I thought, this is it, I'm finished. But I didn't go through D.C. outraged. After I finished at um, the Hospital Association, I started my own small consulting firm. And we represented mostly health technologies, new health technologies, and were fairly successful. And I got a new client right after W came into office. And part of what I always did, most of these companies were startup companies, so I would put a package of information together to take to their members of Congress. And I called this member of Congress I'd never called before and talked to the health LA, said who I was and that I would, wanted to drop by a package of information about a startup company in the district. And he asked me my name again and said he'd have to call me back. And having worked on Capitol Hill a couple of times, I'm thinking, what the hell is going on in that office? And he hadn't called me back in a week, and I called him back. And he said to me, I don't have time to meet with you. I was really perplexed. This was an unusual experience for you. It was the first time I had ever been told that by a member of Congress office. And I was having dinner that night with a friend of mine who was a full-time lobbyist in D.C. for years, and 
a Republican. And I said, have you ever been to this office? And she said, no, why? And I told her, and she said, oh, that's the Tom DeLay Project. And I said, what's that? He was speaker at the time. She said, all Republican members of Congress have been told they're not to meet with anybody but registered Republicans. I said, Sandy. <laughs> she said, sorry, and also K Street, which in our world, where all the big consulting firms, they've been told not to hire anybody but registered Republicans. I said, Sandy. She said, I know, Liz. I don't know what to tell you. And I honestly don't think I really believed her until about six months later I got another client, Republican office. They were not interested in knowing about the new startup in their district. And you had been involved in Washington, D.C. at this point for 20 plus, plus years. years. Yeah. And this was a new development. Right. And I just thought, that's it. I'm finished. I also had my first grandchild out here. So up to that point, your experience as a Democratic sympathizing yeah. lobbyist, you had access to Democratic and Republican members of Congress, no problem. Right. And so this was a big change in the landscape. And in, you got out pretty quickly after you had this experience? Or did six you, months later. Six months later. So you don't know what happened years into this new partisanship. From what I've seen, it's just gotten worse. You saw it early, and you got out. I quickly. saw it. Well, I saw. I sensed a big. Ch you know, when the re in '94, I don't know something about the '94 election. Really, I just thought this isn't something's wrong. I mean, I just got this uncomfortable feeling about it. So the Republican wave in 1994 brought Republican control of both houses of yeah. Congress for the first right. time in 40 years. Yeah. But you're saying that you didn't see the change in terms of the Tom DeLay rule until the Bush administration, so yeah. eight years later, yeah. six, eight years yeah. later. Yeah. So the 90s were still an era I of, still had no trouble getting meetings on Capitol Hill. It was the 21st century partisanship yeah. that has changed it. How do you feel in retrospect about having left then? I miss it. What do you miss the most? I miss the work that I was involved in. I had a real interest in accomplishing things that I thought would be good for the American people. Now that sounds a little, I don't know what. what. It sounds beautiful actually, uh, but you're, you're uh, saying it sounds corny, right? Or yeah, like but, but, but like this, the, the biggest thing that I ever accomplished was in the early 90s, I got a client in California called Access Health that had developed a way it was a computer program for people, when they're sick, they can call a nurse line through their insurance company and talk to the nurse to decide, do I go to the emergency room? How do I handle this? Should I see my doctor? This was brand new then, and we got it. We sold it to United Healthcare, and we got it in the Department of Defense healthcare program, into Medicare. To me, that was a very valuable thing to provide to all of us. Have you ever used your nurse line? No, I never have. I've heard of this kind of thing, and I'm surprised it's that old of a technology. Yeah. I would have thought this was a, maybe a decade old at most. No. You were a lobbyist when this happened, and lobbyists have a pretty bad reputation among the American people as servants of special interests. Yet what I'm hearing you say is that you were able to get things done that you think served the American people. So how do you think the difference between the reputation of lobbyists and the actual world of lobbyists 
And why do you think lobbyists well, have such a bad reputation? Because the difference is, I think, there is no way in hell that I would have taken a job that made me go out and lobby for things I didn't believe in. And was that your general experience with most lobbyists? I think that, that most of them, the ones that I knew, you know, when I started, there were about 6,000 lobbyists in Washington. When I left, there were like 65,000. That's a pretty major change. Yeah. And the lobbyists that I knew, I belonged to a group called, I don't know why it's called Health on Wednesday, but they never had any more than 35 members. They started in the mid-70s because there was another group, all men, and they wouldn't let the women in. And this was a very close-knit group. I mean, I got to know most of these women very well, and I can't imagine them lobbying for something that they wouldn't want for their own families. On the other hand, I think there are people that take lobbying jobs that pay very, very well. They don't care. They're after the paycheck. And, and the way to get the paycheck is to win for your client, whatever right, that means. That's right. And it just seems to me, on a broader perspective, I don't know what my generation did to our kids to make them do this kind of thing. I, I don't understand it. It's certainly very successful. And is that a current form of outrage for you, that this is what our politics has become? Very partisan, very mercenary. Right, right, right. We could talk about all of your experiences in the D.C. trenches for a really long time, I think, but I would like to come to a conclusion here in the interview, and I'm not really sure what question to ask you, but I think that maybe I just want to ask you, what's your advice for young people who want to go to Washington, D.C. and have a positive impact? Because it sounds like you feel as though you had a very positive impact. I did. But in a very different environment from what exists now. What would your advice be now? Maintain your integrity and pursue policies that you know would be good for yourself and your family. I think that's great advice, maintain your integrity. Yeah. I think it's a great note to end on. Well, thank you for coming in, Liz. I really appreciate your experience and your insight. And I know that I'm going to talk to you a lot about the rest of your experience that we didn't get to get to in this uh, interview, but I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. All right, that's another episode of the Pothole Problem Podcast. Thank you to Liz Darby for sitting down with me and sharing her vast experience and her perspective. There's a lot to think about in that interview, and I think some good advice. Maintain your integrity. That's definitely something that, to me, seems like it shouldn't need to be said, but it absolutely, obviously does need to be said. So thanks for that, Liz. Coming up next week, we're going to be moving to a different part of the political arena, and speaking with Peter Toll, who's the campaign coordinator for the Democratic Party of Clackamas County. So he is a person who works in the electoral arena. And in future weeks coming up, we're going to have interviews with people who are running for office or who have successfully run for office. So we're going to be moving back and forth from policy and lobbying and behind the scenes to elections and campaigns and candidates as I attempt to continue exploring the human side, particularly the emotional side of a life in politics. I want to thank, as always my listeners, you, the listeners, for going on this journey with me. I appreciate your ears and your minds, and I hope that I'm making it worthwhile for you to spend your time with the Pothole Problem podcast. And now, as always, I'm going to finish up with a song. 
This particular song is from a band that is fronted by Liz's daughter. Liz gave me this CD after our interview, and I listened to it, and I really loved it. And then I asked Ashley Flynn, who's the front of this band, if I could use this song, and she was more than happy to let me do so. So this is Cold Black Line, an original song by Ashley Flynn and the Riveters. Running down the center of my heart Cold black light Running down the center of my heart Oh mama, when I come to get you My heart starts beating fast How I wish that I could forget you Cause as I will never last It'll be a gold black light The center of my heart Cold black line Running down the center of my heart Oh sugar 